So now beginning in verse 19 of chapter 10, the, the author of Hebrews is done, for the most part, laying the foundation. So what he began, really in chapter 1, when he started comparing Jesus to the prophets and Jesus to the angels and to the Old Testament uh, saints and prophets like Moses and then Aaron and Joshua and then, then the Levitical and comparing covenants. Now he comes to verse 19 and now he gets to apply it. And so what we're going to look at now is, and really for the remainder of our classes together, is look at the application of what he's been talking about. So beginning in verse 19, he says, Therefore, in light of all that we've been talking about, in light of the fact that we're forgiven, completely sanctified, completely, and it's a done deal, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. What he's doing is he's now going to try to encourage these people. Which is really important and significant when you consider who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, probably in Jerusalem, who are going through great persecution right now, great trials and tribulation, where because of their faith, because they have chosen to, to reject Judaism and accept Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross, they have been ostracized, they have become outcasts, they are person non grata, they are now blacklisted, by their friends, by their family, by their associates, by work, by other businesses. They're on their own now. For some, it's so bad, they can't even buy food. And so what happens now is other people have to come along and give them food. Others have to come along and give them money because no one would buy from them, and so they can't sell their goods. And so they can't provide for themselves or their families. And so they're going through great trials and tribulations. And so what he's saying is, now let's encourage you. And so in these verses, in these six verses, there's a lot of lettuce. There's three lettuces, in fact, in verses 22, 23, and 24. And that really makes up the key of this encouragement. So the first one is, let us draw near to Christ, verse 22. So because of this incredible work that Jesus has done, because you are sanctified, because you are pure, because you are perfect and complete, because you're forgiven, let us draw near. Let us boldly go to the throne. Let us boldly run to Jesus. Go to Him. Don't let anything get in the way. This is the one who loves you, that great and awesome God. Go to Him. He's all you need. So let us go to Him. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So let us now put our faith in it. Remember the great theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. So live by faith. Trust Him. Depend upon Him. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Don't waver. Don't let go. 
Just remember that Jesus is what you need and trust in Him, depend upon Him, rely upon Him. This is especially crucial for these people, these Hebrews, because they're probably thinking, is it worth it? I'm going through so much pain and torture and it would all be relieved if I just walked away from Jesus and returned back to temple living. And life would be easier. Life would be simpler. And so they're, they're thinking about it and he writes, let us hold fast. Don't go back. Don't turn your back on Jesus. And then verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. So now it's let us encourage one another, which again is really important considering that maybe you're doing okay, but maybe your neighbor's not. Maybe you haven't been blacklisted to the same degree as someone else. So let us now consider how to encourage another, how to support one another, how to make others um, feel loved, and but also to have them love others. So it's not just about coming to them, but how they can give to other people. So this is the lettuce, this is the encouragement that the writer of Hebrews is giving to, to these Hebrews, but I think it also applies to you and I. Let us run to Jesus. Let us go to Him. And when we're there, let's trust in Him. Let's rely upon Him. Let Him live through us as we now begin to love other people and do good works. Is that good encouragement? Is that a good salad? <laughs> I hope it's a Caesar. That's my own personal preference. But All right, well... Now we come to our warning. This is the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews, and probably the second most debated passage in all the New Testament. The first being the third warning that we looked at last time we were together, which is the one in Hebrews 6. This one in Hebrews 10 is probably the second most debated, as we will see very quickly. But the warning, in essence, is not to trample the gospel. And in verse 26 it begins, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 10, to verse 39. But it says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Do you get a sense why this is a scary warning? Pay attention if you weren't paying attention, is I think uh, what he'd be saying to us right now. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and he has insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, think back to our, our covenant study. Remember we talked about the threshold covenant and when you cross the threshold, you were to step over the basin. But if you ever stepped in the basin... That was a deep insult. Because what you were doing is you were trampling the life. You were stepping on the life. So in the Middle East and Eastern thinking, that is the great insult. Do you remember seeing video footage when, when um, Saddam Hussein was toppled and they had a big statue and the statue came down and then all these Iraqis came up and they took their shoes off and they started beating the statue with their shoe. And for you and I in the West, it's just a little silly, a little weird, right? But hey, you know, they're different. But to them, it was the greatest insult possible. It was them trampling. It was them stepping on. Remember when George Bush was in Iraq and he was, the, he was announcing the pullout and that by the end of 2011, every American soldier would be out of Iraq. And then all of a sudden, one journalist gets up, whips a, through a shoe. Bush ducks, he's got a second one. Whips the other shoe. Bush ducks, he's out of shoes. 
But what was he doing? He was insulting him because he was trampling upon him. It was a covenant insult. And so what he's talking about here is the is a covenant. It's don't reject the covenant. It's like if I were to put a handshake out, do we agree to this? And you slap my hand away and spit in my face. That's what he's talking about here. So don't trample underfoot the Son of God who is regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant. It's the greatest insult they could give. Verse 30, For we know Him who has said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again the Lord will judge His people. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a frightening and sobering passage that I hope has got your attention. But it's an important warning. So let's, let's dive into it and let's understand that there are going to be four different interpretations we're going to look at. And uh, the first one, it's a warning about people not coming to church. I've heard that preached this way. Because they, get, they start in verse 25 where it says, Not forsaking our own assembly together as is the habit of some. And then the next verse is, For if we go sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So what they've connected is the sinning willfully with not coming to church. And so if you don't come to church, you can expect God's judgment upon you. If you don't come to church and you get sick or you stub your toe, that is God judging you and you ought to be in church. Well, that is horrible manipulation. And so that is not what it's saying. And we're just going to flat out reject that one. That is not what it's getting at. We're going to see that there is some connection to the verses before, but it's not talking about not going to church. Because that's not what it was about. The warning, the the exhortation wasn't attend Sunday service. It was something far greater. And we'll understand as we move on. So let's look at interpretation number two which is a very common one, which is a warning about maybe losing your salvation for committing habitual sin. And this is the one that maybe you've heard before. In verse 25, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully. And the sinning willfully here is now the present tense. So it's happening right now. And so they've interpreted that now as, if you are living in sin, be it maybe you're living in an adulterous relationship or you are a known drunkard or you know using drugs or you're cheating in your taxes but there is this idea that it's not just one sin but a habitual sin and that's the thinking that's what they're coming towards now there's two problems with this one is the idea of the habitual sin what defines a habitual sin How many times do you have to do it for it to become a habitual sin? If you do it twice, is it a habit? Or is it three times? Or do you need to do it for over three weeks? Is it a month? Is it six months? What defines a a habitual sin? What if you did it for a week but then took a month off? And then picked it up again? Is that a habitual sin? Or does after that month it just wipes it and starts it clean? And then if it's a month, is it a month or would you know 29 days work? I mean, I guess it would work if it's February, but if it was 27 days in February and then you know 30 days in August, does that give you a fresh slate? Or you know, is it a week? Is it a day? And if it's a day, is it you know a day after you go to sleep, or is it you know just a 24-hour period? Do you, do you see there's so many problems with the idea of trying to define an habitual sin? And the writer doesn't define it as a habitual sin. He just defines it as a sin that is presently happening. 
So I, I think the idea of a habitual sin is something that we've, Im, we've imposed upon the text to try to wrap our mind around it. And so we try to think of it as, you know, okay, if I got drunk four times or five times, or if that's a habit, then that's what he's talking about. But that's not what he's talking about. The other part of it is the idea, well, it's a sinning willfully. Well, here's the reality. How many of our sins are willful? The great, wonderful news of the cross, Romans 6, 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self has been crucified with Him so that the body of sin would be rendered powerless, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For if He who has died to sin is freed from sin. So how many people are freed from sin? Hallelujah! We are freed from sin. Good news. Bad news is every time you sin, you chose to. You, you chose to. You can never say again, the devil made me do it. Which I hate because I have no more excuses anymore. But that's just my own issue. But the reality is we're free. We don't have to sin. Meaning every sin we choose is a willful sin. So if that's the case, every time you're in the moment of sinning, it's willful and it is present, then what's going to happen? Terrifying judgment, burning... Vengeance is mine. You may be just blacked out after verse 27. I'm not sure, but, but it's just not going to be pretty. And so some have interpreted as now they're going to lose their salvation as a result. Well, that doesn't make sense. Think about what the writer of Hebrews just finished talking about. In chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest, He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If you lose your salvation, how eternal was your redemption? Not very eternal. Rather temporary. Rather momentary. It wasn't eternal. And then in chapter 10, By this will, His desire, we have been sanctified. Perfectly sanctified for all time through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for all. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So we're perfected for all time. So if you lose your salvation... How can you lose your salvation when you're remaining perfect? How can God hold this against you? And then in other parts in Hebrews 9, he talked about how I remember your sins no more. It's, it's finished. It's done. There's no more offerings for sin. It's finished. So it can't be about that. There's other verses in, in Romans. The law came so that the, trans, where the transgress, so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, if you can sin to lose your salvation, then apparently grace doesn't abound all that much. Apparently grace is limited. But literally what this verse says is that grace superabounds. It more than it overcomes whatever sin. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as, not as a result of works. If you and I can lose our salvation because of sin, that would imply that we're saved by works. So, can this be a warning about losing your salvation because you're committing some habitual sin? No. All that is, is trying to use guilt and condemnation to get someone to change their behavior. And that's not how God works. It's the kindness of God that leads to redemption. It's His love that changes us. 
So this possible interpretation about losing your salvation for committing habitual sin, it doesn't work. It, it violates the rest of Scripture, never mind what the, what the writer just would have said. So we can reject this one. Make sense? Well, we're making good time. Let's move on to number three. It's a warning to those in the church who profess to have faith. Well, this is the one that I believed for a while. Now, the question is, are there people in the church who profess to have faith in Christ, but don't really have faith in Christ. Yeah. In our first study through the book of Hebrews, we looked at the parable of the four soils. And what the four soils was the road, or the, the, on the side of the road, then there was the rocky soil, there was the thorny soil, and then the perfect soil. And so the, the parable was told where the seed fell, and the seed fell onto the, the rocky soil beside the road. The birds came, ate up the seed, and flew away. The next one came, there was a, a seed fell onto the rocky soil. It quickly sprouted a flower, a plant, but then the sun came up, dried it up, and it withered and died. Then the next one, there, a plant grew in the thorns, but then it quickly overcame, and the fruit never came to maturity. And then finally, the, the seed that landed in the good soil produced hundreds of fruits, tens and tens and tenfold times. And so then Jesus explained these different soils. And he says, the soil is your heart. The seed is the word of God. And on the, the, the one by the road, the seed came, landed beside the road. But the bird, Satan, came and plucked the, word, the seed away, plucked the word away, and that there's no salvation. That's the unbeliever. That's the atheist. Then the next easiest one we talked about was then the, the believer, which is the good soil. That's where the, so, the seed lands, penetrates the heart. There's a root. The plant takes off and it grows. That's the mature, productive believer. And then we have the one that's the thorns, where the seed hits, there's a root, and it begins to grow, but the thorns are the cares of this world, Jesus says. And the person's more worried about the people and things around them, and so it fails to bear fruit. But then we looked at the one, the rocky soil, where the seed lands and it immediately sprouts a plant, and it seems to look good. It seems to look wonderful, but then the sun comes out, the trials and tribulation, and the sun's out and it begins to wither and die because it has no root. Meaning that the, the heart, their soil, was never penetrated by the seed, by the word of God. It was all on the surface. So was that person ever saved? No. It looked good. It looked on the outside that they are saved. Maybe they're going to church. They were singing songs. They were praising God. They were praying prayers. But their heart was still as hard and as wicked and as dark and sinful as ever. There was no penetration of God. And it was proven when the trials and tribulations came, they quickly went away. And so it was a momentary thing. Now that momentary doesn't mean it only lasted you know, five minutes from the moment they prayed and then they rejected Christ. It could take months. It could take years. But there was no real salvation in that. There's also passages in Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about that judgment day. And people will come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, we performed all kinds of works and wonders in Your name. And then what will Jesus say to those people? Depart from Me, for I never knew you. That is scary that there are people in our churches today who profess to know Christ but do not possess the life of Christ. That's a reality. And so is this a warning to those people? That's what I, I used to think. I mean, look at it. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
And so, you know, when they go on and talk about trampling the blood of the covenant and rejecting it, what these people have done is they've never entered into covenant with God. They've rejected the covenant, and hence the reason they're unbelievers. And so the judgment he's warning against is that that great white throne judgment, the judgment of the unbeliever to come. And so he's warning them, do not reject your faith. Do not reject trusting in Christ. Put your faith in Him. Get saved. That's what the warning is. But I said, that's the belief, this is the interpretation I used to believe. The reason is because when you start to look at how the writer of Hebrews addresses these people, it doesn't work anymore. Look what he says about these people. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So there's a sense where they've received this. And I don't think it's just, you know, they've intellectually received it. Because later on in verse 29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Meaning, what is this person? This person is sanctified. This person is righteous. This person is indwelt by the Spirit of grace. This person is saved. This is a believer that he's addressing. Which again makes sense because he's addressing the church as a whole. These believers as a whole. So the idea, the interpretation that this is a warning to those who only profess to have faith but aren't actually saved... Does this one work? It doesn't hold up either. So now we come to our fourth interpretation. And it's a warning to those who reject God for something else to provide for them. Meaning they look to someone else or something else to be their God. To rescue them, to care for them, to provide for them. Look what he says. For, if we go on sinning willfully... The word for is connected to what he was just saying earlier. So it's not a new thought, it's a continuation of the old thought. So we need to look back to and see the context of the passage to see what he and who he's referring to and why he's referring to them, and then also see what's going to come after the warning to see how it all fits together. So let's go to verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. What he is writing to these people, to these Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem who are going through great trials and great tribulation is keep the faith. Don't reject the faith. Keep walking with Jesus. The idea of forsaking the assembling together is just that some people have stopped to announce and and proclaim their faith. They have turned their back on Jesus. It's not that they're just not coming out to church on Sunday mornings. It's that they are disassociating themselves from the faith. That's what it was. It wasn't about Sunday school attendance. It was about their attitude and their faith. And so he's saying, keep the faith. So the sin... The willful sin that he's talking about is faith. It's not talking about drunkenness. It's not talking about prostitution. It's not talking about stealing or cheating on your taxes. All those are sins and all those are a result of your lack of faith. But what he is talking about specifically in this warning is the idea of not putting your trust in Christ, but putting your trust in something else. And that could, something else could be anything. 
for these people, it was probably putting their faith in Judaism rather than, um, rather than Christianity. And it would have made sense for them to put their faith in Judaism because it would have been a whole lot easier to provide for their family. The moment they go back to the temple, people welcome them back. You know, they offer their sacrifices, I guess. And people now accept them and they can do business and they can feed their family again. But they've turned their back on the faith. They've turned their back on Jesus. And that's what he's warning them against. Don't sin willfully in this case. Does that make sense? Well, let's compare that now to what he says after the warning going on. So therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So again, he's keep the faith. It's worth it. There's great reward coming as a result of this. It's valuable, it's important. For you have need of endurance, so that, when you, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So the endurance is the endurance towards their faith. Endurance to the fact that they're going to continue to trust in God, so that they may receive what's promised. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. And the word destruction would be better translated as ruin. That's really what that word would be talking about. is just despair. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the idea is to continue trusting in Jesus. Not in terms of salvation, primarily, but in terms of Reliance in terms of Him providing. Don't look to the temple. Don't look to other people. Don't look to yourself to care for you. Look to Jesus. He will provide. He will find numerous ways. You know, He's been known to send birds to quail from heaven, bread from heaven. He's been known to send ravens with food in their mouths to people as He did with Elijah. So He has numerous ways to provide. He can do it through your friends, through your neighbors. Hence the reason... Do not forsake the assembly. Because then you can go to those people, let them know your need, and they can help out. That's the encouragement that he's giving to these people. But if you don't, if you choose to turn your back on Jesus and demand other resources or other people to meet your needs, then you're in trouble. Then will come judgment. So the question is, what does a judgment look like? Well, I think the judgment can look like numerous, numerous different things. Let's look at some other passages that would support the same idea of judgment. 1 Corinthians 11, 28-31. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, a church that is, is very uh, sinful in their behavior and in their lifestyle. They have so many problems within the church. There's a four-way church split. Uh, people are taking each other to court. They're abusing their spiritual gifts. They're getting drunk on communion. Hence the reason we now have grape juice for it with Welch's. Um, in, in the small little serving cups so you don't get drunk on that stuff. Uh, people were, were abusing one another. I mean, one guy was even sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, it was so bad even the unbelievers, the Gentiles thought these people were pretty awful. And so, in particular now, he's writing about how they were getting drunk and abusing the Lord's table. So they were coming as saying, well, I'm just going to get fed at communion. And so they weren't eating dinner. They were just coming and eating all the food there. And so what was happening as a result was judgment. Look what he says, Paul says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. So here's the judgment. Some are weak. They're fatigued. they got no strength. They're just having trouble getting through the day. Others are so bad they're sick. They're in bed. They have some maybe diseases with them. And then others are asleep. Now, does this mean they're just having a nice nap? It means they're physically dead. Now, what's significant about the fact that he says you're asleep and not dead is the fact that they're asleep. So where are they? They're in heaven. So they've been judged and God decided to take them home. That was the judgment. Some he said you're getting weak, others sick, others he said, I'm done. You're coming home today. Because of the sins that they were doing. It happened with Ananias and Sapphira and Acts. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and so God judged them. What was the judgment? Death. They died instantly. Did God revoke their salvation? No. There's no reason to believe so. And on judgment day, at the Bema Seat of Christ, when Christ comes and meets them, and Ananias and Sapphira walk up, these people in Corinth, they walk up, is He going to talk to them about this? There's no need to. It's already been dealt with. And that second judgment, or that judgment, sorry, at that judgment seat after the second death, there's no need to talk about reference of sin. But there is consequences on earth. There is a discipline on earth that will take place. And so for these people, if they turn their back on God and they begin to rely upon their other ways of living, to rely upon their flesh, there will be judgment. And God will discipline His children. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So the judgment that you and I would face right now is the discipline, not the punishment, the discipline. Think about you parents. Do you ever judge or discipline your kids? I hope so. Reason being is you don't want them to continue to make those mistakes. You don't want them to continue to get in trouble. So if my little girls are supposedly playing with the light sockets, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to discipline them. So they don't play with the light sockets anymore. So they have life. And they don't hurt themselves. That's the judgment that he's referring to here. And I think that's the same judgment that's referred to back in, uh, in Hebrews, tw- Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at another passage in Romans 1, 22 to 24. You see, we've already seen that some might get weak, some might get sick, some might even die. This, I think, is the worst. This is the worst possible judgment that God can give. To those who are professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. The worst possible judgment I think God can give, worse than killing you, worse than taking your life, physical life, is to give you what you want. Is to give you sin and say, have at her. And bury you in that sin. That's far more miserable, I think. And you see that in people. Where they choose sin, and what ends up happening is that sin just begins to multiply and multiply and get worse. And it's horrible. And they just don't know if they can ever get out of it. 
And they're left with this sense that maybe God can't love me anymore. Maybe I've gone too far. And that's how they live the rest of their lives, thinking that. There are great consequences to our choices. And where we choose and who we choose to trust in is important and crucial. And it's vital. And I don't mean to to beat you up with this, but this is a warning that the writer is giving to these people. And it's an important warning to you and I. So, now is this interpretation supported by the wording used by the author? I think so. It's addressed to believers, people who have received the knowledge of the truth, people who have been sanctified. So that one checks. Does the interpretation fit the context of the passage? I think so. It's talking about continuing your faith, continue to trust in Him. Is the interpretation supported by other passages? I think so. We've seen in Corinthians and in Romans and so forth. So I think this one applies. The question is, how does it apply today? And and really, I see this in the counseling office that we, that, you know, how we counsel people time and time again, where people come in and they're looking for life, they're looking for love, they're looking for acceptance, security in a number of different places. In the previous hour, I talked about how we have this formula for life, where God gives us five points, I have two points, and other people are maybe three points. You know, you can just redistribute as you like, but essentially, that's kind of the formula that we have. And when when I share with people, well, God's a 10, they have a choice to make now. Am I going to receive God as being all I need, or is He only a part, and do I need something else? Is it I need God plus something else? A spouse, a friend, uh, another relationship, um, whatever, money, security in my job, a big home, a good reputation. Do I need that in order to be satisfied? And they're faced with that choice. And some people say, no, God, you're it. And they surrender to God and receive from Him. But there are many people who don't. There are many people who instead choose others over God. In essence, they did the exact same thing that Adam did back in the garden. You see, Eve was deceived, it says in Timothy, but Adam disobeyed. And I think what happened was Adam was there the whole time and he saw what Eve did. And Eve was tricked into doing what she did. But now Adam had a choice. He had God on one side, the one he was still connected to. But his wife was now separated from him and God. And he had to choose. Do I want my wife or do I want God? And he can't have both. But he chose his wife over God. And there are many Christians today that do something similar. Either they choose their spouse, or they choose their job, or they choose their finances, or they choose their reputation, or something else, their kids, over God. And they say, but I need this to be loved. I need this to be comforted. I need this to feel secure. And God says, I'm, not, I'm the one you need. But if you reject me, if you lose faith in me, to provide for you on that, you will be disciplined and you won't find what you're looking for. So it's a sobering warning. It's a sobering passage and immediately we begin to think, does this apply to me? Am I the one that's willfully sinning as described in verse 26? Well, it does if you have decided to live in outright rebellion towards God. 
In other words, it does if you have chosen to say, I need God and something else. I need God and my spouse. I need God and my kids. I need God and my church. I need God and my money. I need God and my job. I need God and my reputation. I need God and my health. I need God plus. If that's what you've decided and that's what you are pursuing, then you are living in rebellion. Does God still love you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's not in question. Does God forgive you? Absolutely. That's not in question. But because He loves you, because He cares about you, He doesn't want you to live that way anymore. So there will be discipline to teach you to surrender those idols and trust Him. So the question you ask yourself is, am I looking to other people? Am I looking to someone other than God to provide what I'm looking for? That's a very sobering warning. Amen? Well, I don't want to end on a sad note. So let's look at what the writer of Hebrews ends with, with a way to encourage these people. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We're not those who shrink back to ruin, to despair, to that weakness, to that sickness, and possibly falling asleep, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Because we see that Jesus is better, and we're choosing to live by faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, tonight included a sobering warning. But that warning really is for our benefit. It's for our good. Because like all great warnings, can lead to life. can lead to life in you. If we will trust you. If we will trust you and depend upon you. And I pray, Father, if there's anything that is hindering that trust, if there's an area that needs to be surrendered over to you, that we would do so. That you might be all in all. And that that greatness that you are can satisfy the desires and wants that we have. So Father, continue to speak to our hearts as we go home tonight. Remind us of the powerful truth that we're forgiven and made righteous and sanctified. May we never ever lose the shine of those truths. May we never dismiss them, but instead give them the attention they require and deserve. Thank you, Father, for all that you've given, for all that you've done, and that you live in us. So let us praise your name. Amen. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.